Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're joined by a Democrat who spent much of her professional life taking on some of her own party's staunchest allies. Gloria Romero is here. She's a former state senator who spent 12 years in Sacramento, much of them sparring with the teachers union, among others. She also shocked a lot of people, including us, I'll admit, when she endorsed GOP shock jock Larry Elder for governor in the recent recall. Lots to talk about with former Senator Romero in just a minute. But first, Guy, we are getting a little peek this week into the potential political maps of the future, right? right. This redistricting process is playing out, of course, across the country uh, here in California with uh, independent commission. Uh, yeah. What do we know? Well, think I would say redistricting, things are getting real right now. You know, this process has been going on for a few months. Again, in California, unlike other states, we have a citizens commission that was created by a ballot measure uh, that former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger pushed basically to take it out of the hands of the state legislature. And the idea is to give this Citizens Commission the power to draw these lines. They take in feedback from different communities and they draw Senate lines, congressional lines, assembly lines. And basically this week was the first time we saw kind of full drafts of what their ideas are for how to set up political districts. And there's going to be, no matter how these lines shake out, some big implications for the midterms next year. A couple of things that I found really interesting were, number one, the interplay between the Bay Area, where we are, and the Central Valley, specifically this district currently held by Josh Harder, uh, a Democrat in the Modesto area. Um, it was a he, hard-fought district for him he, both times. Yep, right? he won. He won a close race in in 2018, defeated uh, former Representative Jeff Denham. And in the lines that came out this week from the district, they have tr- the city of Tracy, which is the most liberal part of that district joining the Bay Area. And so basically that would remove a a big blue part of Josh Harder's district, potentially make it harder for him to get reelected. On the flip side, there's some good news for Democrats uh, down south in the district held by Mike Garcia. Mm, Again, another another, another one of those purple districts, purple district just north uh, in North L.A. County. And the interesting thing in this district was that the maps drew out uh, Simi Valley, oh, which wow. is the most conservative right. part of that area. It made it a little more blue. It dipped down further. Uh, I mean, and that was one of those races that was so close. It took oh, it went on weeks for days to call. Days. It was a percentage point. I mean, um, that, yeah. So I think like, it's funny because so much of the national attention is paid to gerrymandering and all these things. But like you see with this, how even with an independent commission, I mean, the politics are still ripe, right? Absolutely. Like, and I, I do I'm not blaming think, the commission. Like, no, it's just I, what it is. Like, and I think you're going to get pushback from Democrats who say, why is it that, you know, in their eyes, and I heard this, uh, Steve Maviglio uh, messaged me on Twitter with this comment, basically, why are 
a blue state like California fighting with a hand behind its back when it comes to redistricting, mm. basically saying there's much fewer of these red states that are undertaking an independent process. They're gerrymandering their seats. They're running up their numbers in Congress. And you have a citizens uh, redistricting commission in California that's not by the books, not paying attention to politics right. when they're drawing these lines. And so I think it's going to be, you know, another iteration of the, this debate, although I will say broadly, I think voters have you know supported this idea of let's well, not and let's mean, not make this gerrymander right focused. and from a sort of practical perspective i mean part of this point is to keep this buzzword we only hear every 10 years communities of interest in line i mean you could maybe argue that tracy might have more in common with parts of the especially eastern bay area than it does with parts of the valley i mean so that's challenging. It's challenging for all those folks who are trying to figure out where to run next year. Huh? Absolutely. And I'll say it's a tight, you know, because of the delay in the census, this got really, you know, sped up. Like the the lines, the drafts are going to be done in early November. By the end of the year, these lines are going to be finished. So it's yeah. they need it in place for June uh, when, yep, midterms coming up. Is there ever going to be a time where we don't have an election? No, no. The answer is no. Um, OK, before we move on to our guest, we got to at least nod to what is all the drama happening in D.C. today. We finally saw the president come out and said that there was some semblance of a deal on this huge uh, package, this uh, this economic agenda. It's now around one point eight five trillion dollars. They're saying it still has over half a billion dollars or half a trillion dollars for climate change spending, 555 billion, 400 billion for universal pre-K, but a lot of question marks around prescription drug negotiations, federal paid family and medical leave, which is a huge priority of the speaker, those state and local tax deductions, which is hurting people in places like California and New York. Um, and it really seems like with progressives not thrilled with where this ended up and moderates like Manchin and Cinnamon in the Senate still not promising they'll vote for it like Nancy Pelosi is in the hot seat like this is this is where we see if she can do the work she says she's good at right and then also you know flipping it forward for those vulnerable members how they're going to sell this back to their district right it's almost like there's so many different pieces of this plan that I'll be interesting to see what what's the message that you know these representatives are taking back to their districts is it just we hit you know all these different priorities are they really focusing on the biggest part of this spending which is pre-K, uh, TK, yeah. child care. Um, and or, or they focus on the tax fairness side of this because, you know, this does the way in large part that this is paid for is putting forward a corporate minimum tax for these big companies that have made all these headlines for bringing in a lot of profits and not paying a lot of taxes. Yeah. Is that something that, you know, usually the T word you stay away from on the campaign trail, but maybe this is something that's a little more populist and popular. But that's also what's been puzzling about a lot of these negotiations is it's clearly not just about what sells at the ballot box. Because look at someone like uh, Kristen Cinema from uh, Arizona, you know, who appears to be the one standing in the way mostly of this prescription drug negotiating. That is wildly popular across the board with Republicans and Democrats. So, like, how is it that to your point, yeah, if you're, you know, a liberal congressperson from a pretty liberal district, are you talking about the taxes? Are you talking about child care? Um, and again, can Pelosi get it done? We'll see, huh? We will see. All right. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be joined by former state senator Gloria Romero. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randad Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here today with guest host Guy Marzarati. Today on The Breakdown, we are welcoming Gloria Romero. She's a former state senator and assemblywoman who's been a vocal and sometimes lone voice for education reform. She also just released a book. It's called Just Not That Likeable. It's about gender bias. Senator Romero, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you. Good to speak with you again. Great to see you. Um, You were in Sacramento when I started covering it as a cub reporter. And uh, it's been a minute, but I got to start with the headlines, right? You made a lot of news this summer when you decided to throw your support behind Larry Elder in that recall uh, attempt of Governor Newsom. Why'd you do it? For the same reason I fought for education as a civil rights issue for virtually every 12 years that I was in Sacramento. Um, I did it really as a general strike to the Democratic Party to say, look, I am not happy with the conditions, the outcomes, the levels of proficiency in math and reading for especially children of color. If we take a look at it, 70% of Latino children in California cannot read, uh, cannot do math at grade level proficiency. It's 80% for African-American youth. And remember when I was in Sacramento, I headed up not only the education committee, but the prison reform committee. So I've been in virtually every prison in California for nothing that I've done, but I've been in virtually every prison. It's 70% of inmates don't have a high school diploma. So, you know, if we don't educate, we incarcerate. And that's more expensive. Yeah. And, and to me, it really was a statement called that, you know, year after year, legislature after year, you know, governor after governor, we still end up with these statistics that to me are violative of of education as the key to the American dream. So I said, look, had there been a uh, a Democrat, like, for example, Antonio Villaragosa, I would have supported him in a heartbeat. There was the shutdown of my Democrats to say nobody can run. So I said, OK, I'm going to look across the aisle. And that's why I went with Larry Elder, who I believed had a background in education. I don't agree with him on a whole lot of issues, but education, I said, you know what? Adelante, let's go. I think the Sacramento Bee called you the uh, most high profile Democrat to support the recall and support Larry Elder. But did you think really when you assessed you know, what he brought forward as a candidate that he could have succeeded on the issues that you're talking about, school reform. uh, Absolutely, because the governor is, it's the bully pulpit. I mean, take a look at what's happening across the country and here in California as well. Parents are on the march. Parents want to have a seat at the table. And that's what I saw when I wrote, for example, the parent trigger law back in 2010, for which the teachers union came after me to chop off my head. Like, how dare you give parents rights at the table? 10 years go by, it's the same fight. And so I do think 
having even one voice and then connecting, especially with communities of color, parents of color in particular, you better believe there would have been, I think, some movement to at least expand the table in Sacramento, get folks there and say, come on, can we do something like education scholarships for the most needy of the needy? Can you expand open enrollment for failing schools? I mean, can you get some reasonable things going? We haven't gotten them under Gavin Newsom, respectfully, but I think it, it takes an outsider. So I, I really felt you almost had to feel like throwing a monkey wrench to say, stop, California. We're about to go into the, the future, and we still have the same levels of disparity for especially low-income English learner students, African-American kids, and it's just not right. All right. I don't want to spend too much time on Larry Elder. but, but So let's talk more about the education stuff. I mean, we mentioned that you have taken on the teachers union in particular. Uh, uh, talk about, I mean, you started out in some ways as a union activist before you ran for office. Um, and I think a lot of people, especially on the left, would say that unions, you know, serve a purpose in both representing their members, but providing a counterweight uh, to the right when it comes to, to political spending. So why do you see the California Teachers Union in particular and the, the, the larger education unions as such a problem in this whole equation when we talk about educational equity and achievement? Um, follow the money. I mean, again, too, you, you take a look at it. Kids don't pay union dues. Parents don't pay union dues. Teachers pay union dues. And I do want to say that not all teachers, like rank and file teachers, are on board with the leadership of their union. But ultimately, a union's going to do what it has to do. And I give respect to them for the sense they're going to advocate for their members. But that advocacy then oftentimes translates to what ends up in what we call the dance of the lemons, if you've seen Waiting for Superman, whereby you find the most inexperienced, oftentimes child molesting teachers who have been banished from more affluent uh, communities, classrooms, ending up in low-income communities because of the perception that low-income parents don't complain or they don't understand it. So it's that dance of the lemons overall. And I did work successfully with some uh, UTLA at one point under A.J. Duffy and trying to get more resources for um, uh, high, uh, high poverty uh, kids' classrooms. But that was rare and few between. So you end up with this clash. You know, I believe in due process. You know, I was a professor. Uh, I, I was a member of the union for all the time that I was there. I paid my union dues to actually, you know, CTA, NEA, AFT. And yet all the lobbyists would come up and, and, and fight against every virtually every bill that I ever authored and tried to submit. So folks knew that I was a bit of a maverick when it came to education because, you know, I represented East L.A. I, I would see that what I got in the classroom as a professor at Cal State LA serving kids from the east side, doing everything right, graduating from their high schools, getting to Cal State LA and still being in a classroom where they couldn't read, they couldn't write. And so the dropout factory, and it just got really uh, exacerbated once I started going into the prisons as well. So I, I wish that the new leadership would really look at it and say, yes, you advocate for your members, but these are the kids of your members, especially, for example, the service employees unions. You know, these are the bus drivers and janitors and cafeteria workers. And I used to make appeals to them to say these are largely unions with members of color. These are your kids that are stuck into these failing schools. Do something. But oftentimes you find, you know, it's the brotherhood, the sisterhood of the union. So they all stood together. Well, do you think 
organizationally, politically, there is something different in your mind about the California Teachers Association versus something like SCIU? Uh, well, organizationally, yes. But I, but I think, too, CT is really the big dog. I mean, they are the ones that call the shots overall. They are the ones that the doors will open much wider. Uh, when you're in Sacramento looking at those halls, oftentimes when I was passing, trying to get legislation passed, the very first question I would be asked by my own colleagues on my side of the aisle, Democrats, was where's CTA on this? Didn't matter what was in the bill. Didn't matter who it had been. It was just simply where's CTA. They didn't start off with asking where's SEIU. So I think that there are, you know, I mean, you've got to build coalitions. But at that time, when I was doing this in the legislature, it really was one of the, I don't want to say the first time, but it was a new chapter in really advocating to say parents, like my mother who had a sixth grade level of education, she fought for me. You know, I have a PhD. My mother had a sixth grade level of education. And when I see these moms in East LA or South Central LA or Fresno or wherever we would go, to me, I think it's just like my mom, they want the same things, give them the respect and a seat at the table. So, you know, I, I, I'm the eternal optimist. I will never give up. I'll get into all the brawls and the fights, but it's going to be a long fight because you're talking about with CTA, the most political uh, political force in California. And it's because of membership and the dues, the automatic dues that come with it. It's a war chest that's unparalleled, even by tobacco and oil and all the other like bad things on our side of the aisle. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati. We are talking with former state Senator Gloria Romero. Um, I mean, I got to ask, though, I mean, so here in San Francisco, we're seeing a, a recall attempt of three school board members. Um, I'm a product of public school. My kids go to public schools. It can often feel, I think, for parents like the challenges and the uh, just just th that it's I mean, it's not just an unnamed force in Sacramento or maybe a name force, but that sometimes it's the districts or the school boards like kind of standing in the way of supporting their own schools, um, because I do think you make a point in, in a lot of the stuff you've written and talked about of maybe differentiating a union from the rank and file. So how do you view that, like the bigger sort of role of everyone who's not like literally in the classroom and, you know, administering the school on a day to day basis, but the the other power structures that exist within our educational system? I, I mean, given that to me and it, I can't do it just comes down to what's our philosophy to me education is the key to the American dream it is the most I think sacred of civil rights for which we fight if you take a look at even you know Martin Luther King when he when he fought lots of it was dealing with schools and segregation I mean the parents in Brown versus Board of Education some of the very first the Mendez families here in California who actually preceded the Browns uh, in Topeka and advocating so there's a long history of that likewise a long history history of school boards and districts who basically become very cushy and have this distance from parents on the ground. So there's a lot to go around. There's lots of organizations. The administrators, I think, really shouldn't be uh, left out of the equation. But if you're a school principal or a superintendent, largely, you don't want to get that vote of no confidence. Who does that vote come from? It comes from an organized workforce of teachers, typically within the district. And if you have a vote of no confidence, your contract is probably ready to be cashed out, you know, sent out. So everybody sort of plays a game in that sense. And what happens, I think, is that kids get lost in the shuffle. Think about Sacramento. There really are no lobbyists for kids. I mean, there's really nobody. 
And so that's why, you know, I feel that when you go to Sacramento and you see all these uh, uh, players, you've got a teacher's union, you've got service workers unions, you've got bus drivers unions, you've got the administrators association, you've got the national school boards association, you don't have anything comparable. So all of them really become complicit, I think, in the quality and the lack of quality and advancement in our schools and how they impact children. So then it's no surprise then when parents do start sort of kicking up and saying, we're tired of this. Well, and so, you know, I always go with the underdog, quite frankly. And Maurice is talking, you know, largely about the this organization, this kind of labyrinth of, of school administration we have in the state. Let's start at the top. Superintendent of public construction. Nominally, that's the top education job in the state. You ran for that position and, and lost in years past. Do we still need that job? Yeah. What do they do? You hit the nail on the head, a labyrinth. This is basically the most convoluted system because it provides jobs for the adults. The superintendent of public instruction didn't exist for a long time. It was actually a creation of the California Teachers Association that created that. It's basically the CTA spokesperson in Sacramento. But you've got that. You've got the great school board in the sky, right? The state school boards uh, that, that the governor appoints and the governor. Then the governor, especially under Gray Davis, you might remember, created tension when he also brought forth with the Secretary of Education. Then you've got a thousand school districts. You've got what, 58 counties, each one of which, or maybe there's a couple that co- that, that overlap. County they boards. have their own county boards of education. So you have the most convoluted uh, 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 rules and regulations of, of what happens with education. And ultimately it's something where you really don't have anybody in charge, except that Sacramento then passes the laws the governor creates the budget. The, the superintendent really has no budgetary role, except that he runs this, he or she, but he now runs the staff that oversees the department. The secretary of education fights on, on policy. And today you find a superintendent who seems like he's hiding out. Like, where is he? You know, he's, where in the world is Walter? Where is Tony Thurman? He's what do you? Like, what do you think he could have done differently last year? Because, I mean, we're talking about the substance here, right? But but a lot of the fights happening right now over education aren't about that. There are culture wars over masking and what we're teaching in schools. Um, and they are and a lot of the sort of activation we've seen over the last year has a lot to do with just getting kids back in those seats. Right. This question of COVID-19 closure. So, I, I mean, was there a role for the superintendent there? Could could you think you could have done something differently? Absolutely. Now, I didn't support him when he ran, but think about it. This is a bully pulpit. And even though it's a very convoluted system, this is the superintendent. You're supposed to oversee. There are some real powers there, and he could have invoked largely federal laws. There's ways in which you can make sure that the state abides by some very powerful laws that exist under under uh, the federal um, No Child Left Behind, for example. But remember, that was a bipartisan partisan effort between George Bush and the hero of the Democrats, Teddy Kennedy. That was a joint effort. And I give every credit to Teddy Kennedy because he really said, especially low income minority kids are getting left behind. That was really his push for it. And when you open up No Child Left Behind and you start looking at it, there were measurements that were structures, testing to take a look at just simply can kids read? And if they can't, what do you do to hold the adults and the schools uh, accountable? All of those could have been done. 
can be done by the superintendent. Sadly, he has failed to do so. So he's kind of gone and he's talked about, I mean, who knows what, when I think the, the biggest issue really is still looking at the disparity. And even in the recall election, that's what Larry Elder spoke about. And that's what I, why I gravitated to him. He was willing, and especially, I mean, I give him credit as a black man coming out of South LA saying, take a look at the statistics. They are abysmal. It, 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 it's, this is a brand new, uh, you know, uh, it's not a it's not a brand new argument, but it's another decade in which we still find kids being left behind. So there's so much that could be done. Can I ask you though? Of, yeah, I don't want to cut you off, but it as well. I, I just it is interesting to me though because all the statistics you're rattling off we've known for years, right? And yet, what seems to have activated parents was not that anger, right? I mean, again, like in San Francisco, we have this recall that was really spurred by COVID-19 closures. But at the end of the day, this is a district that could have be taken over by the state. I mean, I don't know, like, how do you get people to care about the substance instead of the kind of shiny culture war issues? I mean, that's a real challenge. I mean, a lot of it is looking for uh, um, how do you how do you support low-income, oftentimes immigrant parents who might be working multiple jobs, do not have transportation, can't find childcare to basically get to a school board meeting. Or and maybe scared to if they're undocumented or not, exactly. right? I mean, exactly. I mean, I came from a meeting just recently in Orange County where I have started a new uh, charter school network in Orange County. And these were largely uh, Latina mothers, many of them were immigrant. They are asking for help with their children, but it doesn't get on the news. I mean, you don't see that. So, I mean, I can see the COVID thing, uh, people getting very worked up about because, I mean, it's national. People have lost their jobs over this. People are being threatened with losing their jobs if they're not vaccinated. Schools are shut, have been shut down. And I really think that that whole movement to shut down the schools, keep the schools shut down, I think it really almost exposed to parents what's going on in a classroom that has somewhat motivated them. So we'll see coming out of COVID. I think you're going to find a whole lot more discussion, but it was the doors are open because of COVID and the shutdown. Do you think this opens the door perhaps for more change in how we pick school board members? I mean, how, where do you stand on kind of electing directly school board members versus, you know, having a mayor appoint them? School boards are very important, but the sad thing is, if you look at most school boards in California, people are elected with less than 10% of a vote, but nobody knows their school board member. Ask them. I mean, they barely know who their senator is, for example. Uh, they may they know the governor, probably the president. But you ask about a school board member. Uh, uh People do not know. So uh, I don't know that it, it 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 there's great changes overall. But I think that there are movements. I just got invited to speak to the parents union in Orange County. This has been something that has been very successful in organizing parents. And a lot of people say, oh, it's a right wing thing, blah, blah, blah. No, these are mostly Latino immigrant parents who want to do the best thing for their children. They've invited me to be their keynote speaker in November. So I said, yes, I will go. So you find movements like that. I, I'm very happy that parents pushed against the attorney general for the issuance of that memo because and the you know the press release that went with it because remember when I did the parent trigger law these were the same things that I was told oh parents are going to overtake the board meeting they're going to be mean and nasty and disrupt and I'm saying no they're not they're fighting for their kids because there are no lobbyists for kids in Sacramento not on education so it'll be interesting I think there's going to be renewed efforts but translating to school boards it still takes 
money organization, it's hard to get somebody elected, much less recalled as well. So we'll see what happens. You know, it's always who's got the money. And right now, the same old, same old powerful interests still have the biggest war chests to play with. Just a couple minutes left here. Um, but you, we mentioned at the top, uh, just called a book called Just Not That Likeable. It's about women and, and gender bias. And you write about the fact that 76% of educators are women, but just 24% of school superintendents are. Is that part of this equation, do you think? More representation? It's more representation. Uh, and I think it's also to a stronger connection to really understanding family issues. But I think even the bigger issue overall is really looking that irrespective of education, if we look across women in the workforce, or even women in politics, as I write about in the book, there is this thing called likability. You might remember the classic line from Barack Obama with Hillary Clinton at the, I think it was the New Hampshire primary, in which Hillary Clinton was said, oh, well, you know, you're not likable. And Barack Obama responded, well, you're likable enough. That set off a big discussion. Just recently, whatever we think of their politics, there were a number of women who ran just recently for the presidency. Joe Biden prevailed. But think about virtually every one of those women candidates was called bossy, nasty, cackling, blah, blah, blah. It's the same thing. And so I kind of give this overview of the, the stereotypes. In, in, in corporate America, in executive offices, women are supposed to lead, but when we do, then we're called that word that rhymes with witch because we're still looking at the stereotypes that we're supposed to be soft and feminine and caring and oh my God, you have direct links. <laughs> So I write about this, and it's tribute yeah. largely to Anne Hopkins, who really went to the Supreme Court first. And I hope people pick up the book and learn about her. Yeah, look her up. We got we to gotta cut you short here. But thank you so much, Senator Romero. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good luck and congratulations to you. And that's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy over here is my producer. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. And today we're saying farewell to our head of podcast, Erica Aguilar. She's going to greener pastures to head up NPR's morning edition. Erica, it's been a pleasure. We can't wait to visit you in D.C. For today, I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at mlagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati. Take care. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.